0: If you'd look in your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 9. Most of our labor this morning will be off of verse 22, but we're going to be a few mo- moments getting there. And so let's us read together this word, starting uh, with. <coughs> I'm sorry, I got new glasses. Verse 8. <coughs> Speaking of the children of Israel, who who are the true children of Israel, Paul takes up an argument and says, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca conceived children by one man, our father, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he will. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded, say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. The word of the Lord, let he who has an ear hear. Join with me in prayer if you would please. I pray, Father, that you would help me this day for your name's sake and in the name of Christ, my Lord, by the working of your Holy Spirit in me to proclaim this day your name and to ascribe greatness to you who are our God. Ascribe greatness to you who are the rock whose work is absolutely perfect. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Proclaim you who are just and upright. And grant this morning, Lord, that your word, that it be brought home to each person here. Each person who hears the sound of my voice, God, help me that as I seek to do that which you have put me here to do, sent me here to do. May I do it in such a manner that those who hear may feel and know Your Word, O oh God, to be quick, to be powerful, to be a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And if I, I pray, Father, that if there be any unbeliever among us here this morning, that he may have the secret secrets of his heart made manifest and give glory to You, O Lord. I ask, Father, for the weary, the people who are tired among Your children, that Your Word may be as honey from the honeycomb this morning, and that that Word may refresh them, Lord, that those who are confused by all the things that are going on around them, confused by the darkness, may know Your glorious light and Your leadership, Lord, and the comfort of Your rod and staff. And I pray for those who are faint in their labor, that are seeming to grow weary in well-doing, that You would grant that they might come closer to You who are the Good Shepherd. And from that burden that they carry, find rest and peace of mind a peace of mind that surpasses all understanding. It's in Christ's name and for His sake that we ask this, Lord. Amen. Amen. I'm going to be looking at a subject that is not popular at all this morning out of Romans chapter 9. But well, what led me there in the last few weeks is the recognition of the fact that there is not a fear of the Lord in the midst of His people. There was a list of things in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9 that it is very plain that if you practice these things, adultery, homosexuality, and such perversions, you will not Inherit the kingdom of God, and yet it is as though people pay no attention to that. They keep saying we're okay. They seem to ignore what God's word has said. Mark was teaching last week out of Psalm chapter Psalm ninety. And he mentions the fact in his material he was going over last week out of 1 Corinthians 15 that we are going to die. We are going to face God. We are going to face Him and He is going to judge us. And I was thrilled with that because I had been studying out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul is talking about we are going to be put off this tent. We are going to face God. And we're going to give an answer for the deeds that we have done in the flesh. The works that we have done. He is going to judge us according to those things. Now, I'm not entering into works righteousness here. But we need to be very careful what we do and what we don't do. And Paul in First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, chapter five, verse eleven, after he warns the people about the fact that they're going to face judgment, and at the end of the, his letter, in the very end of the Second Corinthians, after telling the people, "I've this is the third time I've come to you," the result of what I'm saying to you, I want you to look at it and I want you to examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith or not. Test yourself. And he says, in light of the fact that we're going to face God, we're going to give an answer for the deeds that we have done. He says in verse 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Knowing that fear. And there's something that most people don 't like to talk about it. indeed, if you start talking about you should have, to other, some people a healthy fear of the Lord, you talk to them that, about the fact that it is God that is in them, both to will and to work and to do His good pleasure. and so they shall therefore work out their salvation with fear and trembling because of who it is that indwells them. Don't they know that the Spirit of God indwells them? If indeed they are Christians, don't they understand who God is? But people resist that. They will even fight you and say, I have no reason to fear God. I have no fear of God in me. And they get actually belligerent because of these things. They don't want want to face this. Now, we talk about the fact that we should love God, and we do love God, and God loves us. As a matter of fact, in that same chapter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, after Paul has said, knowing the fear of God, therefore we persuade men, and he gives some more comments, and he said, now the reason that we do this is because the love of God controls us. The love of God compels us. The love of God controls us and compels us to tell men the truth about who God is and the need that is actually in their life. And that if they practice those things, regardless of who they say they are, that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting with verse 9, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Will not. That's really not hard to understand. Not at all. And so we warn them, because we know the fear of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, there's something that The Lord says, <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 10, if you look there with me, and in verse 12, and this is not something that's very popular to talk about. This is not something that we consider very much, because I'm going to be talking about why we should fear the Lord. You're going to be hearing me use terms like wrath, terrible, dreadful, as I describe God to us. I'm going to be using the term terrible quite a bit, as a matter of fact. I'm only going to be using that instead of the word awesome that's often used in the New American Standard and the ESV. And the reason I'm doing that is because the word awesome has lost a lot of its meaning among us now. It's lost its content. When we speak of awesome, we might be talking about a pair of shoes. That's an awesome pair of shoes you've got there. Or an awesome beard, or an awesome this, or an awesome that. And we've lo- it's lost its content. It's lost its meaning. And I looked at the And that's what I like the King James Version for, because it uses the word terrible in some things that I'm going to be looking at. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 11, instead of using the word fear, King James Version uses the word, therefore knowing the terror of the Lord. (laughs) We warn men because of what they might be, what they're going to face. Noel Webster, the 1828 edition, says, as his definition for terrible, it's something frightful, something adapted to excite terror, terror, dreadful, formidable. The word is adopted to impress dread, terror, or solemn awe and reverence, and then he gives a couple of scripture reference in his definition. I thought that was great. He uses a term out of he uses a, uh, an example out of Deuteronomy. The Lord thy God is among you, a mighty God and terrible. Out of Psalm ninety nine three, he uses it again, and he speaks of what how the people should approach God, and he says, let them praise thy great and terrible name, for it is holy. Holy, holy God. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, the Lord is speaking, and he says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your God, for your good. And behold, he's saying, behold to the Lord your God belongs Heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. And yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. There are things in the scriptures that are revealed to us, things that are shown to us in God's Word. Things of which it is our duty to believe. We're supposed to believe them even if we cannot comprehend them. Even if we can't understand them. These things have difficulties surrounding them. But God has not seen fit to explain them. And because He doesn't explain them, they become trials and exercises of faith and humility in our life. We accept so many things by faith and rightly so. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God because God has said, this is who I am and this is what I expect of you. This is what you're supposed to do. Don't add anything to it. Don't take anything away from it. Even though you might not comprehend it. Humbly we bow before that. It should suffice to hush any and all trivial objections to divine things that are difficult. When we consider what God has given us to consider. And that is simply this. This might be difficult. But here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about how great, majestic, and exalted I am that God is. And what poor grasshoppers and worms of the dust we are. Consider that. There are things that are taught in God's Word because it is the glory of God being revealed there. And it cannot be comprehended. It is in God's Word because it is God's Word. And there are things which we, as I've already said, are required to believe even though we cannot reach them, even though they are beyond us. We can't understand them because they are of God who is, my friends, when it's all said and done, incomprehensible. We can't understand Him fully. We can know fully what He's revealed to us, but we can't know Him in His infinite greatness because we are finite creatures. And then, so Proverbs 25.2 becomes a reality when he says it is the glory of God to conceal a thing. <clears throat> so we're not going to argue with that. Matter of fact, have you ever thought about this? This is how God answered Job when He answered Job from the whirlwind at the end of the book of Job. He didn't explain to Job why he did the things which he had done. He didn't explain to Job things which had caused Job to stumble and say things presumptuously. That caused Job to stumble and object to things. God didn't explain that. But you know what he did? Read it. Go home tonight and read it. When God begins to answer Job out of the whirlwind, he only showed him something of his glorious, majestic greatness and Job's own nothingness. And so here, in our text, in Romans chapter 9, the apostle has mentioned an objection made against God's sovereignty in determining the state of the souls of mankind. And he replies to that objection only by putting us in mind of how very foolish how very, very, very foolish it is for the creature to reply to the creator. That's the, that's the only way, <laughs> that, that's the only way he responds to it. And this teaches us what we've been singing about, what Mark has been praying about this morning, that God is our sovereign and listen, he is our sovereign and the absolute disposer, capital D, as the potter. He does with the clay what he pleases to do with the clay because he is God. The doctrine that is objected to here that we read in Romans chapter 9 is that God shows mercy to some and not to others. And he does that according to his free and sovereign will and according to his absolute decree. They object. The objection that's being made is that he hates some and he loves others before they're even born or done anything good or done anything evil. They object to the fact that he says, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy and I will harden whom I will. In verse 19, this objection is made in Romans 9. If you look there with me or read it, and you will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, if it is the will of God that some men be hardened, why are men blamed and judged for being hard-hearted? And verse 22, our text that we're really going to be working off of is part of the answer to that question. A potter, I would say, to you has, and I've already said, has a right, and he has the power to do whatever he pleases with the vessel that he makes. Whatever he pleases. God endures. Let's read verse 22 together. What if God, desiring to show, take note, His wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. God endures the vessels of wrath, is what we're taught here, with much patience. He lets them continue, like he let the Amorites continue, until their cup is full. He lets them continue under the offers of mercy until they have filled up the measure of their sin and then the glory of God's justice, the glory of God's vengeance, it becomes very visible in the destruction of said people. He lets it go on. And so there's a doctrine that we need to see here. It has been God's plan for all eternity to show how terrible His wrath is and to show how dreadful and powerful His anger is. From all eternity, God has accomplished this already and He will accomplish it yet To a greater degree. Already, I said, alright, think about the flood. Think about the choosing of Noah, of eight souls, and the rest of all that existed perishes. It is gone. The power of His anger. The justice in His destruction. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. What was saved there? A man and his two daughters. And a woman had been said, been told, don't look back. But she did. And the anger and the wrath of God consumed her. And she became a pillar of salt. See some of you start to sweat and swallowing. That's okay. God will have it known, my friends, how desirable and valuable His favor and love is. But it is also His will that it should be seen and known how dreadful His displeasure is. We're playing with fire. And we can't hold it to our breast and not be burned. It is to God's glory that the terribleness, the terribleness of His anger should be manifested. Whatever, listen, whatever is true concerning God is part of His glory. Whatever it is, it's true. He says, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I'll take it. Why is there going to be vengeance? Because people have neglected His Word. They have no fear. Israel had no fear of God. What He told them to do in Deuteronomy chapter 10, and He had vengeance on them. They sent them into captivity. They died in the wilderness. They never received the promise. There was no fear of God in them. Whatever is true of God is part of His glory. There is nothing in God that should be out of God and nothing out of God that should be in God And everything that pertains to God contributes to His glory. The glory of His divine nature. We sing about it. We opened. (laughs) I just rejoiced in my heart when Mark started reading Exodus 16. We opened with something of what I'm talking about that we're going to see two sides of the coin there in just a moment. Because that happened... I can't get ahead of myself. God is glorious. And the more anything pertaining to God is known and manifested, the more God is glorified and the more His glory is proclaimed and declared. Whatever it is. That's why I prayed out of Deuteronomy chapter 32. I actually was led in my prayer by the prayer of Moses at the end of his days with you this morning. All His works glorify Him. And it was His end in causing there to be any other being beside Himself is that in that being He should be glorified. His creation of the heavens and the earth. And He is the Lord of the heavens and the heavens heavens and the earth and all that is in it. He's created It's for His glory. And God does not see fit, my friends, that one glory of His nature should be manifest and not the other. And right now, it's all about the other. And the other should be talked about. It should be. The love of God compels me to talk about today what I am talking about. To tell others that, yes, you need to fear God. We as a church need to fear God. We as a denomination, the PCA, needs to fear God. So it is His pleasure to show how terrible His wrath is and how very, very desirable His favor is. Because the dreadfulness of His wrath and the wonderful worth of His favor are things in which the glory of God consists. I hope you got that. Because they go together. In showing how terrible and dreadful the anger of God is, the greatness and the majesty of God appears. And it is by this that God shows how worthy He is to be the object of His creatures' humble, reverent, careful respect. Humble, reverent, careful respect. And how infinitely worthy He is of their holy awe and dread. Like Isaiah, when he saw the Lord. Oh my. What a thing that goes on here. Don't you know that we, my friends, this day when we called on God, He was with us before, but He is present here. God is here present. Psalm twenty nine, one and two says we are to to ascribe to the Lord the glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory to His name, and worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, the splendor of holiness, in your holy attire, in your righteousness that Christ has given you. That's how we come before Him. The terribleness of God is often mentioned in Scripture, and you could. Go home and get your strong concordance and look up the word fear. Look up the word wrath. And look up the word terrible and terribleness. And and pursue the teaching of God about Himself in the Word of God. In the revelation that He has given you of Himself. Psalm 66. The psalmist says, Come see the works of the Lord. He is terrible in His doings toward the children of men. He says again in Psalm 68, O oh God, You are terrible out of Your sanctuary. From Your sanctuary come fire and lightning and <laughs> holiness. And Nehemiah chapter 1, if you read his prayer, and I often do because I love to pray it with Nehemiah, he speaks of God and he says, O oh Lord God of heaven, a great and terrible God. I don't think awesome works for us there anymore. Not with what we've done with the word awesome. We just kind of take the word awesome and go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. God sees fit, my friends, not only to declare this, but to show it and make it appear in fact. He doesn't merely declare by His Word that He is holy, but He shows it is so by His acts. I will be sanctified by those who draw near to me. Sons of Aaron, this is the way the high priest shall enter into the holiest of holies. Because I am holy, you are also to be holy. And you don't approach me frivolously without humility, without carefulness, this is the way you come before me. Now I'm going to get somewhere else if a clock will let me. But this has to be said. He doesn't only declare that He is good and that He is gracious, but He glorifies His grace in His gracious works, does He not? the gracious works that we were singing about. We see both sides of the coin. We see the wrath of God, the anger of God, the power of God's anger, and the dreadfulness of God's actions when Pharaoh is pursuing Israel. And he comes after them and God presents Himself as a pillar of fire before them that protects the Israelis from the fury and the power and the wrath of Pharaoh. But they can't touch God's people. God in His love and in mercy is preserving His people. He's showing His power. He's demonstrating this act. And so, the children come across on dry ground. And the cloud and the fire is removed and Pharaoh pursues. And guess what happens? The power of God's anger, God's wrath came upon Pharaoh and all of his army after even Egypt had been plundered and he and all his chariots are cast into the sea. They're drowned. They are no more. But think about it. Think about it. If you've been standing on that Red Sea shore, we've got the wrath and the power of God's anger and Pharaoh and all of the company of Egypt had been being warned about it for ten plagues. But they would not repent and they still pursued an evil means, an evil desire in their hearts. But here on the other side, here's Moses and he gets a new song. I was singing to the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider cast into the sea. The Lord is God and I shall praise Him. My Father is God and I will exalt Him. Not only did he sing it, but you read a little farther over in Exodus chapter 15, and Miriam and all the ladies take their timbrels and they take their whatever they had to bang together and to make joyful noise unto the Lord, and they dance and they sing the song of Moses on the Red Sea shore. <laughs> I get goosebumps to have been there, to see that glorious, awesome, terribleness and majesty and holiness and power of God working against all that is evil and preserving His own. And so, He declares and He shows Himself holy. He not only, as I said, declare that he is terrible but he makes it appear in works of terribleness you know what I thought about when I thought about that work of terribleness I thought about two people in Acts chapter 5 I said oh man And that work caused fear to fall upon the people of the church, to the people all around. Ananias and his wife had conspired in their hearts together to sell something and then to lie about it. And they came and they Ananias presented his offering to Peter. And Peter said, What are you doing, Ananias? Do you don't you know? That when this land was yours, it was yours. And when you sold it, it was yours to keep. But now, you've lied to Me. But no, 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 that's not what He said, is it? No, you've not lied unto Me, but you have lied unto God. And He fell dead. And you read a little farther down, and it said, and great fear came upon the people. And his wife came in and said to Peter, yeah, we sold it for this much. And Peter said, why in the world have you contrived in your horse together to sin against the Spirit of God? And she fell dead. And great fear came upon the church. The church! My friends, why? Because they lied to God before they lied to Peter. And that's something we need to understand about the Ten Commandments. A lot of people say the first part of the Commandments is all about our relationship to God. And the second part is about our relationship to to mankind. You don't lie to them, you don't steal from them, you don't commit adultery with them, you don't steal, you don't do things like that. But no, I say before that is true, we need to remember the preface of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God and you shall not lie. Because when you lie, you have lied in your heart and you've lied to God before you've ever lied to the man. You have committed adultery in your heart. Jesus makes it very clear. And you have sinned against God who is your Lord before you've ever committed the act. You've sinned against God. And great fear came upon them. What happens here? The creature who sees this will have his heart impressed, I would hope, with a sense of His fearful and awful majesty. And then, accordingly, give awe and reverence to Him to whom it is due. Oh, my. When you get a glimpse of this, friends, you won't be playing when we're praying. You'll be praying with us. You'll be praying with us. The psalmist. No, by this I would say that God shows The reverence when we see this and respect we should have for His authority, for His law. His authority is to be respected infinitely more than any earthly authority. God will have us to know how dreadful His displeasure is to the breakers of His law. You will not, if you practice this, rebel in this, inherit the kingdom of God. The psalmist speaks in Psalm 90 of the power power and the terribleness of God's anger. And it is a thing that is actually unknown in the world. He says in verse 11, not all of it, but he says, Who knows the power of your anger? Nobody. We don't know the extent of it because it's infinite. It is infinite. And it is so glorious, we can't even begin to understand it. It is among the other inconceivable things of God. And so it's fitting that we, as creatures, should see that that we should see this. That we should that we should be struck with it and have a sense of the power of God's anger. And we should be made aware that God is to be feared vastly more than any other being, or thing, America. Is in dread right now today. Churches are not meeting. We're not going. And it's right that we don't do it because if it was a flu epidemic, we would have done the same thing that we did here this morning. But people are in dread, and they're preparing in the point of fighting one another and hurting one another for what they think might be going to come. They're in terrible dread of this virus that's spreading. They're afraid of it. They've called us a terrible, terrible thing. And it is. But it is nothing compared with what we're talking about here today. America, wake up to who God is. And yes, I believe with all of my heart that Brother Piper is right. It is God in control of this. America needs to wake up and not just pray about this virus, but understand it is the hand of God. God's providence. In His government of all that is, He's in control of what's going on. So, by this we are made more sensible when we see this. of the worth and the preciousness of God's loving kindness toward us. Toward us. When we see this, we will prize. It will be a treasure to us. This favor of God. We will seek it with care. We will seek it diligently. We will seek after God's favor. We don't want to displease Him. We don't We want to cultivate God's pleasure. And we'll make those who enjoy this favor. If you're enjoying this favor, this should make you more sensible of this great happiness that you have, this joy unspeakable that now belongs to you we realize now that His loving kindness is better than life. And if we are by God's free grace admitted to a place where that we might know Him and enjoy the smiles of His face. You know where that comes from? The smiles of His face? First Corinthians 4 Now may the God who said for light to shine out of darkness shine in your heart to give the light and the knowledge and the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to that knowledge of His favor only in the Lord Jesus Christ. That face smiles upon us. Reaches out to us. And if we have been embraced and we know we've been embraced in the arms of His love. And we rejoice in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We glory in that by which the world has been crucified unto us and we unto the world. We see that. And we see the wonderful power. We see this great and dreadful majesty and justice on those who are the objects of His wrath. How much more will this, my friends, make us prize prize the precious blood? Prize His love? And it will double the sweetness of our joy to understand this. And we'll get on our face and we'll cry out to God, Thank you, God, for your sovereign grace which alone made me to differ from any other man. That's it. You grace. You are what you are. By the grace of God. What makes you to differ, old man? It is simply the grace of a sovereign God. That's it. That is it. And this is something we're taught, and I'm closing with this, in the verse following our text, which is verse 22. we see this is one end why God endures the vessels of wrath. He endures the vessels of wrath in verse 22 he says, What if God desiring to show His wrath? Think God would desire such a thing? I'm afraid so. And to make known His power, which I've been talking about, has endured which must, with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And so we're taught in this verse that He does what He does to show His wrath and to make His power known. That is an end. But in verse 23, we see something else. In order to make known, he does this in order to make known the riches of his glory. (laughs) We're enjoying the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. That he might make known the riches and the great worth and the value of his glory on the vessels of mercy. We see this better. When we see His wrath on the vessels of wrath. My friends, look around. Think about the history of the church. Think about the history of this world. I ask you this day, are you, are you aware of His terribleness as well as of His grace. Do you have a sense of His awful majesty and terrible wrath against sin and a sense also of His wonderful grace? They go together. They must go together. Without the sense of one... There can be no true sense of the other. And without a sense of both, the idea of God is imperfect. It is not a true revelation of His nature and glory. It's not. Do you know these things? Have you experienced this glorious joy, unspeakable and full of glory because you've seen what you deserve? And then you've seen Jesus. You've seen the Father sending the Son. You've seen Him absorbing the wrath, the terrible... You don't even understand the death of the King until you understand the terribleness of God's anger and wrath. What He was absorbing there on that day on your behalf. What He took to Himself that you might sit here an object of His grace and love this morning. That your heart reach out and praise and thanks for your choosing me. Separating me. If it hasn't ever May it this morning. May you behold the glory of the one true God in this house this day. Is my prayer for you and me. Let us pray. I ask you, Almighty God, to grant this day. Grant it, Lord. Since you have redeemed us by the death of your only begotten Son, grant that we might set a course that we might not ever interrupt your favor by our ingratitudes or rebelliousness. But may we, God, by your grace, so live in obedience to your word, in obedience to the gospel, that we might be finally brought to the perfection of that grace that is working within us even now. And may we, O God, walk by Your grace more and more every day in true righteousness until we are finally gathered into Your heavenly kingdom. And enjoy to a fuller measure the inheritance that has been promised and obtained for us by Christ, our sovereign Lord and King. Into your hands, O God, we commit our hearts and souls and all that we are, have your way with us, O glorious potter for we are the clay and we humbly bow in Jesus name Amen Amen and now may the God may you almighty God who said and for light to shine out of darkness give the light of the knowledge of your glory to these people in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.